touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkebaum. Or so you think. We Ooh. could be undercover. We could be secret agents. No, we couldn't be. But we're going to talk about secret agent tech. Specifically, we're going to talk about James Bond technology. Yes. We, we were so excited about this that we have possibly compiled like 10 pages of notes. No, it's not possibly. We did compile 10 pages. In fact, we before we came into the studio, we actually had to go in. This is... Behind the curtain, guys, we had to go in and start deleting stuff because it was so much. That we're like, we can't do a five part episode about James Bond. Yeah, tech. yeah. I mean, o- over the course. OK, so this is a phenomenon, a global phenomenon mm-hmm. that was based on a single 1953 novel, Casino Royale, written by Ian Fleming. Yeah. Who better known as, of course, the creator of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Clearly, <laughs> um, <laughs> he he wrote all of the all of the James Bond no- novels that you know he originally created from mm-hmm. this Jamaican estate that he had called Goldeneye, and yeah, it all branched out from there into the beautiful goofy thing that we have today. Yep, and and there are you know some eras of James Bond that were significantly more goofy than others. Yes, uh, I think the Moore years, the Roger Moore years in particular, got goofy. Pretty and if, silly. And because there is a lot to cover, and some of it we want to uh, relate to actual real world technology and kind of explain which ones are realistic and which ones aren't. Because there's so much, we are going to do a two parter because it's just it, otherwise we would have to just pick and choose, and it would be really unsatisfying, at least for us. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, but so, yeah, as Bond himself gets most of his gear from MI6 and from specifically their Q uh, standing for Quartermaster Branch. Yes. And uh, so you often will find that the uh, various uh, people that Bond ends up interacting with at MI6 go by a specific letter, Q or M being the two big ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Q, of course, is the the person in charge of giving out all of the weird gadgets and usually at some point in the rollout uh, gives a little gives a little, you know, bond a little kind of a slap on the wrist saying, could you please stop blowing up the stuff I give you? Because all of these wonderful things, I mean, we didn't list the number of things that we're going to talk about that he has blown up, but. I mean, it's safe to say that it's most of them. Yeah, yeah. He's not only not only has he blown up most of his gadgets, I think at this point he's blown up most of Europe. Uh, but uh, no, that's that, that's accurate. Uh, I, I did want to note that Fleming himself was mm-hmm. in the naval intelligence for the British Royal Naval Reserve in World War Two, and that it's been suggested that that because uh, Fleming was doing a little bit of field work, you know, breaking in and entering to photograph sensitive documents, that sort of thing, that um, that the character of James Bond was a highly romanticized version of himself. Yeah, as it turns out, uh, the stuff that spies really do and the stuff that James Bond does are not necessarily aligned. I mean, I don't know that there are many spies who actually have these incredibly flashy lives that bring a lot of attention to themselves. Like, I can't imagine a spy walking into a casino and winning game after game after game, drawing attention to him or herself, because that seems like it's antithetical. Counterproductive? Yeah, to being a spy. Yeah. But, but at any rate. Uh, but, but some of the tech that James Bond uses is actually very real-world correlation. Sure. So let's start off with one of the iconic pieces of technology that James Bond depends upon in practically every movie. Now, it's a little different from the novels series and the movie series, but in the movies, he has a sidearm, the uh, the Walter, or Walter, PPK, uh, which is the one he carries in most of the movies. There is a point where he switches from the PPK to the P99. That would be in the movie Tomorrow Never Dies. 
And from there all the way through to Casino Royale, that's what he's using. But then it goes back to the PPK. Uh, now, PPK stands for Police Pistol Detective Model. And you might think, well, where does the K come from? It comes from the German word, which is... Oh, let's try this. Okay, so Police Pistol Criminal Model. Oh, boy. I knew I'd butchered that one. I'm... Uh, you're probably doing it better than I would. And and in German, it is, in fact, pronounced Walter. Yes. 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 But, but in British and American it's Walter. dialect, we say Walter. It is spelled W-A-L-T-H-E-R, but the Germans do not have a th sound. It's a it's a hard T or, or a D sometimes, depending upon what part of Germany. But at any rate, so this is a very small gun, which makes sense. It has to be concealable, mm-hmm. right? So it's a small gun. It's semi-automatic. It's double action. It's pretty reliable. Yeah. It's uh, uh, often used in various law enforcement agencies throughout all of Europe. Uh, both the, the uh, PPK and the P99 were. And so it's one of those that um uh, you find all over the place in Europe. So it made sense. And in fact... Uh, in the novels, I think he has a Beretta. Yeah, originally, in, in the first few novels, he was carrying a Beretta um, until a fan named Joffrey, um, or Jeffrey Boothroyd, I've clearly been watching too much Game of Thrones, sorry, <laughs> um, uh, wrote in and recommended more appropriate weapons in 1956, and Fleming went in and made the switch, and then furthermore honored Jeffrey by naming Q after him, the, the character of Q up through, um, up through the point when the original actor passed away, I right. believe, was named um, Boothroyd, uh, yeah. Major Boothroyd. Yeah. So uh, also, you know, in, in the uh, Casino Royale movie or Casino Royale movie with uh, Daniel Craig, mm-hmm. um, the jumping way ahead. But uh, in that film, apparently he uh, is convinced to hand over his Beretta to trade up to the the vaulter. Oh, cute. I don't remember that because I've more or less blocked that film from my mind. I have not seen it. I know. I haven't seen any of the Daniel Craig ones. Oh, man. I know. I enjoyed the at least I I really liked the last one. Um, But we can talk about that later (laughs) on. Um, But before we get into our big list, because it is very big, um, I I did want to mention that there is a a term for the kind of plot device that most of these James Bond gadgets are, because they are not just devices. They are plot devices. Right. Right. Um, and, And it's called a Chekhov gun. After Russian author Anton Chekhov uh, and his observation that, uh, which which relates to stage play more so than movie play, but anyway, don't put a rifle on the wall unless it's going to go off. Right. If you're going to if you're going to put something in a conspicuous spot that the audience sees, you cannot then deny the audience the payoff of uh, of using that. Right. You can't. Right. You can't not use it. In fact, uh, there are a lot of films that follow this same sort of approach. Uh, the first one that jumps to my mind: Shaun of the Dead. Huh. They look at the yeah. Winchester on the wall, and you know that at some point they're uh-huh. going to have to shoot that gun. Yeah, yeah. All My right, favorite so. reversal of that was in Slither, by the way, with the, <laughs> the oh, grenade. Right, but. yes. That is a good point. Yes, you can also play with this by by reversing it. Every rule is made to be broken. Yes. So let's dive in. Now, we're going to go chronologically as far as the films go, which means we're going to jump around a couple of different Bonds, but uh, I'll, I'll explain a little bit of that when we hit there. So the first James Bond film to come out was in 1962, and it was Dr. No, and that was when uh, you know they had our first James Bond was Sean Connery uh, as uh, as Bond. Uh, now, Dr. No is one of the movies where you see James Bond doing all of his spy stuff, but they're not really all these crazy gadgets that a lot of us associate with Bond based upon later films. Uh, yeah, yeah. There was like one self-destructor bag in that movie, I think. And that was really the only standout 
tech that happened. Yeah, and in that case, the the bag, the purpose of the bag was so that it would destroy any case notes that were inside the bag, so that if Bond had been captured, those notes could be destroyed and there would be no evidence of what MI6 did and did not know. So it was purely defensive in that sense. It wasn't a weapon, it was just to destroy documents. But then we move on to 1963, to From Russia with Love, and boy... We got a, a very earnest request from a coworker about a particular gadget that shows up in this movie. So earnest. Um, uh, Robert over on Stuff to Blow Your Mind wrote us in on both Twitter and Tumblr where we had, we had posted a query on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook, uh, to ask, ask people to write in and tell us their favorite Bond gadget and why. And Robert responded in not one but two places. Yes, he said, you've got to talk about the briefcase in From Russia with Love, which is interesting because this is what a lot of people think of as the first James Bond gadget. Now, first of all, inside this briefcase, James Bond carried a rifle that had an infrared scope in it. So that's pretty gadgety all by itself. Mm -hmm. But then the briefcase itself has so many hidden compartments and cool things that you immediately want one. So it had, aside from the part that I'm pretty sure that the weight limitations would start to be an issue, but it'd probably be a little weighty. It'd probably be a little heavy. Okay, so you got a rifle on it, so that's that's some weight, right? Uh, it also has uh, a, at least one, if not two, knives in it. Uh, right. Um, uh, tubes for ammunition. Right. So these these brass tubes that carry uh, bullets in them. They're not. They don't shoot bullets, but it's a way to carry ammunition inside a place without someone seeing that you're carrying lots of ammunition in. Uh, right. Some some belts of gold coins. That for might all add of... a little weight. <laughs> 50 gold sovereigns is exactly how many were in that briefcase. 50. That's a lot of gold coin. Um, each gold coin was, uh, well, technically worth a pound sterling, but everyone used it as bullion. So uh, then you've got the poisonous gas that's also inside the briefcase. So oh, right, because it, it had that trick lid. And if yeah. you didn't know the trick to opening it, then it would go off and you. gas you. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, this is a this is a pretty cool thing. And in one of those, uh, I actually saw a video online of a fan who created a replica of this briefcase using plastic stuff for all the weapons. So like, you know, little, little fake yeah. bullets and plastic. But it was it was incredibly uh, faithful to the original design. It was really amazing. I'll see if I can find that video and uh, link it when we put this live. Awesome. Uh, see, they also had a both a radio phone in the car and a pager for Bond. Uh, right. Both of which were technologies that existed at the time, but were really only in use for like very high paid doctors, yeah. um, state officials, kind yeah. of stuff like that. Yeah. Pagers had only been around for a little while, maybe maybe about five years when when that came out. So it was still a very new thing to most people. They also used a bug detector. Now, this was not the only time that a bug detector is shown in a James Bond film, but we're not going to cover all of them. Just to say that this is very much spy tech. This oh, is, yeah. you know, when you can put something that's designed to get surveillance from uh, a, a specific area, whether it's a microphone or a camera or whatever, bug detectors are a real thing. They detect different stuff. Like you might have an EMF detector looking for electromagnetic fields. You mm -hmm. might have a, a broadband radio scanner to t pick up any radio Transmissions, signals. Transmissions, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is totally something that happens in spy business uh -huh. all over the place. And, and furthermore, it had been happening for, for I'd say, since at least World War II. Yeah. And in, and in fact, you'll, you'll hear us. In fact, I, I'm sure we've talked about it. Perhaps it was in, uh, I think it was our Skunk Works episode where we talked about how Lockheed Martin would have these uh, meetings with the government and they would actually sweep the room for bugs, for bugs first, yeah, right. in a hotel. You know, it would be a hotel that no one knew what the location was going to be until it happened. And so this is stuff that happens today all the time. 
Um, then they had a, a special camera that hid a tape recorder inside of it so that Bond could uh, could clan, uh, clandestinely record conversations. conversations. Right. Uh, it's funny because now our phones do this. They have both the, you know, you can get an app that lets you record stuff. You can take pictures. So a lot of the technology back then was, you know, like, let's combine these two crazy things to make another even more crazy thing. And today and, and, we have it. Yeah. And a lot of sci-fi style mini- miniaturization was going on in these films, too. I, you know, at the time, the idea of a tape recorder that could fit into a, a camera was pretty wild, yeah. especially to consumers for whom um, A-tracks were kind of the new big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're looking at the regular reel to reel tape recorders, which were enormous, Mm -hmm. like the size of uh, like a small television set. I mean, these are these were big pieces of equipment. So to have a miniaturized version of that was pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, As for weapons, uh, special gadget weapons, some of the bad guys had some cool ones. Uh, There was one had a a shoe that had a dagger hidden inside of it. A little shootout dagger. Yeah. Or or I guess not shootout, but retractable. Yeah. Kind of like a switchblade for your foot. You know? Which seems like just a terrible idea if you're as clumsy as I am. I would yeah, injure myself with right. that so quickly and easily. Lauren accidentally brutally stabbed herself 47 times while walking up the stairs. Yeah, no, it would happen. Uh, then uh, one of the bad guys had a garrote watch, a watch that had a wire uh, wrapped around the watch face. So, mm, that, he so could, that you could pull it out like, like yeah. you're... And yeah, it would just it would just be long enough so that you could strangle the heck out of somebody. Uh, and the bad guy tries to do that on Bond, but spoiler alert, it doesn't work. OK, I, I can't believe you just told us that. I know. I'm Jonathan. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But um, uh, nothing about the garage watch was particularly like unusual. I do think that if you were going to try and hide a wire on yourself, you probably could find a better place than on your watch. Mm-hmm. Like you could easily sew it into a garment so that you could easily, you know, whip it out of there or whatever. Like mm-hmm. you just have a little secret pocket or something. But hey, it's not as cinematic. So maybe that's the whole reason. Yeah. Yeah. And actually the shoe dagger thing, um, the the shoes that Michael Jackson designed to do that, um, that deep lean. Oh, dance yeah. Move, yeah. The one in uh, Smooth Criminal. In Smooth Criminal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, had sort of a, a similar mechanism of i mean you know n- not for I, it didn't shoot a dagger into the stage to hold him up but um <laughs> but it did shoot out a little you could you could trigger a little hitch that would that would pop down from the heel so uh, i see so and, i guess and hook into the stage and hook in into the, yeah yeah oh cool so so he wasn't doing that all on his own no wonder i broke my nose four times trying to do that move yeah he was a professional yeah Hold a patent and everything. If only I'd known then. So moving on, in 1964, we get one of the most famous James Bond films. That's one of the, this, this is the one I always think of when I think of James Bond is Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Sean Connery is still with us. Yes, he's still the Bond. Uh, in fact, you know, Connery does some jumping around, but we'll get into him that a little bit later. But yeah, this is, this is the, of course, the famous scene in this one with the big industrial laser that's slowly going to uh, bisect James Bond. Um, and, uh, Goldfinger says, uh, you know, James Bond says, do you expect me to talk? She's like, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. It's my favorite line in all of cinema, I think. Way up there. That one. It's a good line. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. That's another big one. But there, you know, that's obviously not a James Bond movie. So do we have industrial lasers that will bisect a super spy? Uh, We have industrial lasers that could bisect a a super spy. I don't know that any have been put to that specific use. (laughs) There may be some crazy uh, uh, villain out there who has, in fact, used it on a person. But we certainly have lasers that are powerful enough to do physical harm to a person. Uh, at the time, I don't know that anyone had created a laser quite that powerful. 
but they do exist today. It's but we use them for things like cutting steel, right? Like, like using for sure for cutting cutting uh, industrial uses. I mean, it's an industrial laser. Yeah. Well, if it could cut steel, I'm I'm pretty sure it could cut. James Bond. James Bond. Uh, yeah. I mean, the guys. He the does guys, have he does have abs of steel. He is a tough dude. But so Goldfinger was the premiere of of one of these iconic James Bond items. Oh uh, yes. Are you talking about his vehicle? Yes. His vehicle. Yeah, I guess it's uh, an Aston Martin. Yes. An Aston Martin DB5, to be specific. Right. Uh, there there are other Aston Martins that appear in the James Bond franchise. And there are also other types of cars. But, I mean, some of them are, most of them are ones that James Bond, you know, gets, borrows, let's say, for a short while. The Aston Martin is always associated as being James Bond's car. Like, it's something that was yeah, I, developed I, by Q and he drives it. I and, believe that they entered into some kind of, like, marketing agreement with the company in the yeah. 1960s, right yeah. around this film, say. Yeah. And <laughs> Well, you know, and the Aston Martin is a luxury car company out of England. Oh, they're gorgeous. Uh, they are gorgeous cars. And the, the company itself, for a brief while, was a subsidiary of Ford Motor Company. But that was that was much later. It was in the, the 90s mm-hmm. uh, for, for, like, a few years. And then it uh, was bought. Bought back that some some uh, uh, financiers purchased most of the ownership of the company back from Ford, which now I think owns a tiny share in comparison to what it used uh-huh. to have. Uh, but with all of the switching around, um, has it ever had an ejector seat? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the Aston Martin, very well known, lots of, lots of gadgets on this thing, including the famous ejector seat that is used in Goldfinger. Um, also, uh, uh, machine guns behind the headlights. Yeah, that's another big one. Tire slashing hubcaps, uh, revolving license plates, uh, smoke and oil slick defense tools. So if you've ever played the old arcade game Spy Hunter, which had all of these sort of things and either on its car or enemy cars, it owes everything to this to this movie. Also, uh, also Mario Kart, I think. I mean, it didn't have any <laughs> banana peels or turtle shells. But, no, um, no. I mean, if only they'd had a, a couple of red <laughs> turtle shells, Bond would have just sailed right through all those problems. <laughs> um, that, that flipping license plate thing, by the way, is a real thing in China. As of 2008, Chinese police reported that they were having a problem with, with a lot of people installing these remote controlled plate changers that, that only cost about like 100 to 400 bucks at the time. So that way they could, they could drive under a fake license plate and then switch it over to a real one or something. Yeah, yeah. To, Interesting. To, to, to avoid getting tickets. Wow. Um, and also there is a, uh, you know, the Aston Martin, although we do identify that very strongly with Bond in the books, it was uh, a different type of luxury car that was used in most of the novels, which were uh, Bentleys. Yeah, yeah. Definitely for the first few. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if. If, if it stuck with that for the whole thing. Right. Yeah, but for the first like four or five, I think. Yeah, they certainly used... before they started getting upgrades to them, because again, in the early books as well, uh, they, they weren't so tech heavy. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bentley, by the way, also British car company. So right. Not, right. not a big surprise there. Yeah, also gorgeous. It's not just like, oh, only a Bentley. Also about this specifically, listener Mike Goldenberg on Twitter asked if any cars with weaponry and ejector seats exist in real life. And okay, so the Mythbusters did create a car with an ejector seat. Yep, they cut a hole out of the roof of a car. They built the ejector seat. They put Buster in it. The whole rig weighed about 300 pounds. Mm -hmm. They calculated how much rocket power was going to be needed to eject it, and they put the rockets into the seat and they tested it, and uh, and Buster flew out. So everything's awesome, right? It works perfectly. Aside from the part where it filled the entire cabin of the car with flames. Yeah. As it turns out, it probably would um 
burn you pretty badly. Now, granted, if you came up with some other ejector method, like you had built some sort of super powerful uh, air catapult, or if you had just a really uh, strong spring that was uh, held into place with latches that you could un- unlatch, you might be able to eject someone from a car without feel- filling the car also with deadly flames. But um, that's... Y'all. I'd, I'd, I'd say it's probably a bad decision. Yeah. Let's just say that it's not something you're going to commonly find in vehicles. And spies <laughs> do not usually drive around cars that have that. Oh, it's, spies, by the way, usually don't drive around incredibly flashy sports cars. Yeah, it turns out those get attention, just like, we, just like you know, always winning at the casinos. So, yeah. But uh, all right. So there are other some other gadgets in gold, uh, Goldfinger that we should talk about. There's the homing beacons, which right. these are a thing. So the homing beacons in Goldfinger, I think, were uh, transmitters that they could pick up via satellite, which, you know, not that unusual. I mean, other than the fact that trying to transmit a signal that can be picked up by a satellite is a little uh, little challenging. But, you know, now, today, we could totally have these kind of beacons, but they'd be operating on various uh, wireless frequencies where you might even get GPS data from a satellite, but it's not beaming information back to the satellite. Instead, it's beaming information to somewhere nearby. Uh, right, right. Um, as of the year that Goldfinger came out, uh, GPS was actively guiding U.S. Navy ships. But um, this was called the Navy Navigation Satellite System. Mm-hmm. Instead of using um, GPS as we know it today, it evaluated Doppler shifts in signal from satellites with precisely known orbits. And uh, it wouldn't be more precise until we got into the kind of GPS that we know today in the 1980s. Yeah, and even then, I mean, military obviously would have had access to the the best of the best. It wasn't until uh, the late 90s that we started seeing that creep into markets where we could make real useful, um, like we could really take advantage of GPS. Because before that, it wasn't so accurate that you could do like turn-by-turn directions. Yeah. It could tell you if you were in the general area, and that was the best. At any rate, homing beacons, I mean, there are plenty of things that can give off a signal that, depending upon how far away you are, you can totally track it. So uh, that's not that uh, far-fetched. Although, of course, the ones that appear in the Bond movies tend to be smaller and more versatile than what you actually get in real life. And for specifically 1964, it was a pretty yeah. impressive, pretty impressive feat. Oh, and also, uh, since we didn't delete this one, I have to bring it up. It's not really a gadget, but it is one of the early ridiculous examples of Bond technology. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about the, uh, the, the camouflage wetsuit. Uh, what makes it camouflage? It had a rubber duck on top of it. Yeah. Uh, Bond kind of, uh, throws it away, uh, in disdain. But yes, it had it was a, a wetsuit with a rubber duck on it. I did not delete that from our notes because um, I felt like it was really probably the most important of all the technology that we will be talking about today. It's fair. It's fair. It's early, but it's fair. All right. We're moving on to 1965. This is Thunderball. Uh, there was some tech in here that was definitely a little more uh, far-fetched, particularly Sci-fi-ish, for the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they had a homing pill, which was something that Bond could swallow, and it had a homing device in it. Uh, being able to create a pill that would have a device strong enough to a- emit a frequency that you could pick up from any distance is problematic because where do you get the power source? Yeah, What's powering yeah. it, uh, which is which is the problem with a lot of these very small gadgets that yeah. we're that we're going to be talking about is really the power source capacity that even today we don't fully have worked out. Yeah, we could miniaturize the electronics, but miniaturizing the power, I mean, battery technology has lagged well behind other technologies, and we all know this. It's one of the big challenges. 
challenges with today's electronics is that we can make incredibly powerful electronics, but often the battery has trouble keeping up with the pace. So that would have been a big issue. A lot of the sort of stuff that you think of, like the, the, the biomechanical type pills that doctors are using today to track things in experimental clinical trials are passive. And right. that you're using a giant system that can track the pathway of the pill, but it's because the giant system is sending in signals that bounce off the pill, like ultrasound or something right. like that. So little tricky. Uh, he also has a rocket belt uh, where he it's like a little jetpack and it allows him to escape after he kills a bad guy. And um, here's the thing. It was a real jetpack. It was actually based off of. In fact, it was a Bell Aerosystems rocket belt. And that was something that Bell Aerosystems had developed for the U.S. Army specifically to let people do really short jaunts. I'm talking about like 20 feet. You couldn't go very far at all. You couldn't go very high and you couldn't go very far. Yeah, but uh, but it used uh, hydrogen peroxide as fuel. Which was bizarre. And later ones used other types of fuel as well. But it they never were terribly useful. Uh, it was very difficult to control. They're expensive. Uh, there was a, a, you know, obviously there was the risk of injury. So uh, it was never anything that was adopted widely, but still kind of a cool sci-fi thing to have in a Bond film. Sure. Um, other personal um, motion systems involved in this film included an underwater jetpack. Yep. Let him go through really fast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the pack itself was still a little bit sci-fi at the time. I mean, we've, we we have personal diver Jetpacks. Yeah. Well, maybe not jetpacks. Not jetpacks, but like little, you know, you those little motorized assistant things that allow you to really Propulsion zoom through. Yeah. Packs. Yeah. And we, we wouldn't have something quite that small until 1969. So it wasn't that far off. Right. Uh, there was a portable rebreather or actually it's an air supply is what they called it in the film that would give just a short amount of air, like a couple of minutes worth of air that could be used either underwater or if, say, you were in a room filled with poisonous gas. Uh, you would actually see this in a callback in a couple of other Bond movies, as well as a Star Wars movie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but anyway, it was one of those things where, um, uh, you know, the actual spy agencies, after they saw this, started asking, hey, does this exist? Because we would totally use one of those. And it totally did not exist. Uh, this was a request, by the way, by David from Twitter. So, David, uh, we totally wanted to cover it. But yeah, it's, it, it kind of looked like two little CO2 canisters like you would see in, uh, if you ever saw one of those slot cars that use the CO2 as the propulsion. Uh, yeah, yeah, sort of like a, like a cigar container shape. Yeah. The, the two small ones and then they were, they were, uh, they meshed together with a little mouthpiece thing that you would just hold in your mouth. And there's just no, easy way of handling that, like the pressurized air, which is kind of, it would, it would not be pleasant. Never put your <laughs> mouth on a CO2 canister is what I'm saying. For one thing, you're going to freeze yourself. For another thing, you're going to suffocate. And for a third thing, your eyes might pop out of your head because that's a lot of it. That's a lot of gas going into you all at once. Important safety tip. Thanks, yeah. Jonathan. You're welcome. This reminds me of that time when you tried to drill a hole in your head. So uh, there's also a cassette recorder hidden in a book, which is totally legit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, spies... Like a big thing in spy technology is all about surveillance and hiding things in uh, mundane objects, like sure. hiding hiding equipment in mundane objects. So not at all a stretch. No, uh, although, again, I'm not sure if in 1960, Murnimer, um, yeah. whenever that, that 64, that film, I think. 64, thank yeah. you. Um, uh, I'm not sure if that if that level of miniaturization would have been possible. Yeah. So uh, and also they had the skyhook system. Now, this is super cool. This is the idea where uh, James Bond has this harness and it can hook up to a line that's a, a tether. The other end of the tether is attached to a weather balloon, 
releasing the weather balloon goes up. Uh, the balloon goes up into the air. It does not. It's not enough to lift James Bond. Uh, n- no, but Bond can then signal a local airplane. Yeah, and the airplane flies by, and it's got a hook on it that hooks this tether and pulls James Bond off his feet, flying up through the air. And actually, in this case, he's got a uh, a lady with him, um, which is not a big surprise if you watch the James Bond series. And you might think, well, that's kind of cool. And I've seen that in other movies, too. There were, you know, there are other examples. There was a uh, uh, in one of the Batman films. There oh, was sure. an example yeah. of this. Yeah. Uh, and that's because it totally exists. Yeah. This was actually invented by someone we've talked about before. Robert Edison Fulton Jr. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because you listened to our flying car episode mm-hmm. where we talked about how he was one of the early inventors of a flying car that never <laughs> got off the ground. Um and at any rate, I love it when you judge yourself for puns. That's, that's <laughs> so he developed this particular technology for the CIA. So it was actually built for spies. So cool that it actually shows up in a movie and that it's, you know, pretty much the way it works with some, some, uh, they took a, a few liberties, but yeah, more or less, it's the same concept. Then we get to You Only Live Twice in 1967. Uh, now we get the, uh, what I called in my notes, the killer cigarette thingy. I believe that was the technical term, in fact. Yeah. He's got a cigarette that uh, has a projectile in it that can fire via rocket, and it is accurate up to 30 yards. So I looked to see if I could find anything like this. Um, there are some similar technologies, but nothing quite to the level of this. Uh, in 1954, Nikolai Koklov who was a uh, uh, sent by the Soviet Union at that time to assassinate a German anti-communist agitator, uh, was carrying a very interesting weapon. It was a weapon desi- designed to look like a cigarette case, um, but in fact, it was actually a a gun. It could fire, depending upon which account you read, it either, it either fired cyanide-tipped uh, darts, cyanide bullets, or a puff of cyanide. <laughs> But at any rate, um, it's moot. Kokolov decided not to assassinate the agitator. He actually turned himself into German authorities, handed the uh, the pack of the, the cigarette case over, the gun over, and um, sought asylum. So he was essentially defecting. It was yeah. it was a huge story at the time. Yeah. Um. um and uh, okay, so I mean, there there have also been single shot cigarettes, uh, something that holds like a twenty two caliber round that can be fired when when an operative pulls a string with his teeth. Yeah. Pretty um, crazy. So. Uh, so so it's realistic ish. Ish. Uh, they also he had a gyrojet rocket gun, which you might think, oh well, there's no way this existed, except this totally existed. Uh, it's a little handgun that could actually fire projectiles that were rockets. It's not a bullet. You know, a bullet, you, when you fire it, a, a striking pin hits the the back of the cartridge. It ignites the propellant. The gases that expand push the bullet out of the uh, the barrel, and it flies through and, and, and goes toward the target. In this case, it's actually a little rocket that the rocket fuel, solid rocket fuel, ignites, and it takes off from the gun. Uh, now... These were developed both by the Russians and the United States, um, but never really became popular. And part of the reason was that they were not effective weapons at close range because they had very low muzzle escape velocity. Uh, right. They wouldn't really reach full speed until they were about 25 yards out of the gun. Right. So unless your target was 25 yards or further away from you, it, the, the bullet was not going to strike with the full impact. And, uh, you know, you can imagine this. Let's just imagine a... Uh, 
like instead of a bullet fired from a normal gun where it's losing velocity as soon as the as soon as it starts to exit the the barrel this is the this is different because it's fuel is inside the bullet itself it's propelling forward um but uh it was not terribly accurate it was uh no, not good at close quarters. Yeah, so. I mean that that did mean that it was really uh, lightweight and had no recoil, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, but but anyway, yeah. well, we've got so much more to talk about. Yes, but let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, and we're back. And someone's not back with us. That would be Sean Connery. Oh yeah, because this is uh the first film, first James Bond film to uh, that's officially in the James Bond canon. That did not feature Sean Connery. Yeah, that this would be um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service from 1969. Yeah, with George Lazenby. And uh, the reason for Connery's uh, absence was because at this point he was becoming a big film star and could demand higher salaries. And so, and so he did. Yeah. And they said, we'll go with someone else. Uh, so some of the gadgets in this film included radioactive lint, which actually was kind of a brilliant idea in a way. It was lint that had been irradiated that could be planted on a target's clothing, like in a pocket or something. And because of the irradiation, they would be able to track the movement of the target. Uh, they don't explain how they irradiated the lint or what kind of radiation it's giving off or whether or not you've just doomed this person with cancer. Uh, none of that's explained. But the idea of being able to hide the tracking device in such a way that it would just naturally feel like someone's... Like part uh, of someone's person, yeah. Yeah, that 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 was what was really kind of interesting. Um, they had a safe cracker device. It was this kind of, kind of like a cord that had a little grappling thing that would, uh, grapple onto the, the combination dial and slowly turn the dial and start to judge through either mechanical stress or maybe even the sound of the tumblers, which numbers were the most likely to be the right combination. And it takes a really long time to, uh, to work in the film. But that's that's probably fair. Um, this it, it was it was one of those combination devices, yes. and it also had a doc, document copying mechanism attached. Um, yeah. I mean, clearly that's what I want in all of my safe cracking tools. Yeah, I hear that that version it was supposed to be like a liquid toner one, which would not have been terribly useful in the field because if you tilted it, then all this toxic toner liquid would come out of it. But at any rate, it was an interesting <laughs> idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, well, maybe, maybe not obviously, depending on how much you've read about Xerox Corporation, that kind of tech had been patented back in the 1940s. But as of the end of the 60s, it was still the huge office sized ones that, right. that, I mean, that we still have around today. Yeah, it wasn't something that you could fit into a, right. an attache case. Not at all. Uh, all right. So he all, but something you could fit in an attache case was the tiny camera that Bond used. Yes. Um, it, it wasn't even futuristic for the 1960s. Walter Zapp designed a sub-miniature camera in 1936 and helped start up the Minox company to manufacture them. Um, it was definitely in use in World War II by spies. And, uh, yeah, it used film about a, about a quarter the size of 35 millimeter film. If it, anyone listening still remembers what 35 millimeter <laughs> film looked like. Or even what film looks like. Uh, what, what's also interesting is that this was originally, that camera was originally made for luxury, uh, Vacations, like yeah. it, was, it was meant for rich people to take, to so put that, in their pocket and just right. go. Yeah, and uh, ended up being that spies were like, "That is something that we we want. That one, get us that one." Uh, diamonds are forever. So guess who's back with us now? Sean Connery. Yeah, we missed him. So 1971, Diamonds Are Forever. Now this one had some cool tech in it. There was a biometric fingerprint scanner in this movie, which today 
our iPhones have? As a screen lock. Yeah. Um, crazy that the FBI would only start funding the development of the real tech as of like 1975. I think the first wide use of the system was in Japan in the 1980s by the police force over there. But right. so, so this was this was a few years ahead of its yeah, time. Yeah, it, it was actually predictive technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have a laptop at home that has the little fingerprint scanner where you can log on that way. So it's totes a thing, y'all. Uh, also, there was a ring <laughs> getting back into that. Why are you grabbing so much attention for yourself, Mr. Bond? Uh, Q gave James a ring. I like to call him James. A ring that um, that would You're allow him like to. That. Yeah, uh-huh. it would allow him to manipulate slot machines using electromagnets so that he would always win. Uh, because that's exactly what you want from a casino staff to to notice that you are anyway. Um, I guess it was so that people would take it, bring, get attention to him, so they come to him, so he doesn't have to spend all that effort tracking them down. You know the way that every other spy in the world has to do. <laughs> if I just make a big enough nuisance of myself, they'll come to me. I just have to escape five or six unescapable death traps, and it's all good. Uh, aside, aside from logistic reasons, uh, why, why would this not work? Okay, so the old electromechanical ones, I can't imagine. Slot machines, you mean? Yeah, slot machines, exactly. The old electromechanical slot machines, I can't imagine having an electromagnet being able to stop it at a specific point. Uh, but furthermore, today slot machines are using digital circuits to determine whether you won or lost. So electromagnets, I mean, you could probably create an electromagnet strong enough to disrupt the machine. Yeah, you could probably mess up that screen real good. But um, it, but it wouldn't, but, it wouldn't pay out. Yeah. Uh, and also you would have very large men with no necks wanting to speak with you very shortly after you pulled that kind of stuff. Um, moving on to the next film, Live and Let Die. Okay, so Sean Connery's gone, and now the greatest James Bond in all of cinematic history joins us. I'm not sure whether you're being sarcastic or not right now, and that's delicious. Uh, Roger Moore we're uh, talking about. He He's the James Bond of my childhood. Wow. He was James Bond when I was a kid growing up, so he is... I don't really think he's the best James Bond. I think I think the most of the Roger Moore films are ludicrous, but I also enjoy them for that specific uh, feature. So Live and Let Die had a couple of different weird gadgets in it. There was a Rolex Submariner watch that had an electromagnet in it. Now, this electromagnet didn't let uh, James Bond win it at uh, uh, slot machines. It let him deflect bullets. In theory. Although James Bond immediately says, this is totally not going to work. And, you know, it totally wouldn't work. You would not be able to create. First of all, you would never be able to pack in enough power for an electromagnet in watch format to do anything to change the trajectory of a bullet. Of a fast moving projectile. Yeah, um, it's not. It's basically just not ever going to be Wonder Woman's wrist bracelets. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, too, because, well, as long as I can still have my lasso of truth. That's all I really want. Uh, then uh, also the watch was capable of acting as a buzzsaw, which could cut through cable. And uh, both of these things would require so much power that, again, where do you get the power? Where, yeah. do you, where do you fit a power source in something that small that could do this? Because if you're talking about a buzzsaw, you need torque and speed to make that effective. Right. So yeah. and, and that's and that's a physics issue. I think not a miniaturization issue the way we, that we've been talking about with some of these. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could put a saw blade on the side of a watch face. I just can't imagine you being able to to turn it fast. Yeah, enough you could probably to... just manually cut <laughs> stuff with it. Right. Very, very yeah, slowly. that's true. That's true. But... Uh, they also had a special clothing brush that hid a radio inside of it, um, which, again, not a big surprise. Uh, uh, surveillance, again, uh, radio 
transmitters that are disguised as other things. That's totally a mm-hmm. real spy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a shark gun that shot pellets that expelled air at high pressure, which would make targets explode. I don't know how that would work. This, yeah, this is another physics issue. I don't, I don't think that that's how. How could you create a pellet that, that's small enough to be fired by a gun and yet hold enough pressurized gas so that it could blow up a target and yet not explode when you fire the gun. <laughs> like, even if you were able to pack compress air that tightly into that small of a package, if it's supposed to explode upon impact, or not even impact, if it's supposed to embed into a target and then explode, I just don't see how it would work. Maybe if it has, if it contains a, a small portal to another dimension, like a wormhole, and that, that dimension is just filled with highly pressurized gas. Mm, all objections are lifted. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, and there was also in that film, the deadly Cadillac Eldorado. It, it fired poison darts out of its side mirrors. Yeah, that was one of the bad guys' uh, cars. I would like to think that that's exactly the Eldorado you would have won in Glengarry Glen Ross if you had made the most sales that month. First prize is an Eldorado that shoots poison darts. I um I don't know. I think I could use one of those in Atlanta traffic. I think yeah. I would enjoy it. Well, just remember, third place is you're fired. The Man with the Golden Gun, 1974. Still uh, Roger Moore. Yeah, this this is uh, the Golden Gun is one of those, again, sort of those iconic uh, things that you think about in the James Bond series. If you're a fan of the full series, uh, the Golden Gun, it was a super cool concept. And of course, the bad guy in this film was such a great marksman that it didn't matter that the gun could only hold one bullet at a time. You had to reload after every shot. The gun itself could be disassembled and each part of the gun was disguised to look like something else. The gun's barrel looks like it's a pen. The handle looks like it's a cigarette case. The chamber, the firing chamber, is a cigarette lighter. And the trigger is a cufflink. So, you know, you take it all apart, and suddenly it looks like regular stuff that's made out of gold. <laughs> also, his uh, belt buckle held bullets. Uh, that's uh, that's both fashionable and... Deadly? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... This particular type of gun, I mean, obviously these parts, it, you could, in theory, machine parts that look like this sort of stuff. And a lot of guns are meant to be disassembled. You take them apart, oh, sure. especially if mm-hmm. you want to clean them, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's not like this is unheard of. Uh, however, you know, y- you wouldn't really be able to use these things. Like, they wouldn't have any utility outside of being a gun because you couldn't build all that stuff in. I, it would, it would be very, very difficult at any rate. I can't I can't imagine. And you'd have to use materials that could withstand the pressure of a bullet. You know, I mean, you're talking about the, that rapidly expanding right. gas that propels a bullet. So whatever you're using has to be strong enough to contain that. I assume that gold is up. actually a terrible choice for that sort of thing. Yeah, it would have to Gold's... be like gold plating. It couldn't be sure. made of gold. Hmm. It would be a bad, bad choice. Uh, but but even even if if this golden gun could not exist, uh, that kind of gun that is disguised as another object, like I was talking about. That uh, that single shot cigarette gun. Yeah. Earlier, I also saw single shot uh, lipstick guns that were cool. popular with Russian spies. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, there was <laughs> there was a great one that both Russians and United States developed guns that were in the shape of pipes, like the kind that you smoke, ah. smoking pipes. And uh, you would just uh, take the little pipe stem off, and with a quick twist of the pipe, it shoots the one bullet, and uh, yeah, it had to be really close for it to work. 
um, because I'm, it didn't have very good accuracy. Yeah, yeah. I'm suddenly even even more afraid of Matt Frederick than I have been previously. Uh, it's, that's understandable. Uh, so then there is the Solex Agitator. This was a device that was part of the doomsday machine in The Man with the Golden Gun. In this case, it was a, a tiny little thing that could somehow harness huge amounts of the sun's power and then devote it to something else, whether it's for energy or, say, a heat ray or a laser. So, uh, yeah, the Solix Agitator is one of those things that I wish we had. I, I wish our our solar technology, solar technology was that, that efficient. That yeah, yeah, that would be that would be really nice. I get Not, to work on that science. I, I wouldn't want it to blow stuff up, mind you. I just want it to to provide energy. Jonathan, don't don't lie to our maybe listeners. blow a few things up. Okay. All right. Then there was the AMC Matador car, which converted into a flying car with wings and jets. Uh, for more information on that, just listen to our flying car episode, and we'll talk about all about how problems with flying cars. That brings us to the last movie on our, our list for part one, The Spy Who Loved Me. That was a 1977 film uh, with Roger Moore yet again. Yep. And uh, this one is the one that uh, that kind of inspired us to talk about this episode. It, when when the news broke this year about a particular vehicle that's featured in this movie, uh, there were a lot of people who wrote in and said we should cover this topic. And so the Lotus Esprit was the car in the film that was able to convert into a submarine. Yes, I, I believe this was the first time that the Lotus was used in a James Bond film, and it would uh, continue to be their, their marketing partner for the next couple, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it shows up at least once more, if not more than that. Um, although Lotus has never created a model that is convertible to a submarine. Didn't stop Elon Musk from buying it, though. He, nope. bought, he bought it and said that as a boy growing up in South Africa, it absolutely captured his imagination to see... This vehicle turned into a submarine. It also had torpedoes, landmines, machine guns, and missiles. It could also blast out cement that could act as either a smoke screen underwater or completely coat the windscreens of other vehicles and obscure their view. And uh, so the nickname for the, the car is Wet Nelly. Do you know how much he spent oh, to buy this car? I do not. $997,000. Wow. Just under one million bucks. That's a prob. That's a lot of money. So that's a whole bunch of money. Um, Lauren, but- if you're Elon Musk, and you've just bought a famous movie car that in the movies can convert into a submarine, but in reality cannot convert into a submarine, what do you say? Um, screw it. I'm turning this into a submarine. That's exactly what he said. He said, "You know what? I am a rich man." With lots and lots of, of of ambition, I am going to turn this into a for real submarine, if that is at all possible, and I'm going to replace the drivetrain with a Tesla motor drivetrain. <laughs> so it's going to be an electric vehicle. Um, Top Gear actually totally built out a replica Lotus, and and it in fact worked underwater in that it moved under its own power <laughs> and did not drown the driver for a very short period of time. While it was in testing mode, um, I'll, there, there's a really I'll link it uh, on on social. There's a really terrific video. There's water actually coming out of the key ignition <laughs> into the cabin. That's it's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, l- listener Thomas on Facebook wrote in about this one and uh, and said, well, who doesn't want to be able to change to submarine when the Californian traffic gets too stressful? No and joke. I, I agree. 
So a couple of other little things that happened in this movie. There was one point where uh, James Bond uses a ski pole that ends up being a gun that can fire multiple shots from the handle. I, I look at the pictures of this because I, I don't remember. I mean, I've seen this movie, but it's been so long. I don't remember it, uh, this particular scene. But all the shots looked really awkward. Like it would have been really hard to aim that particular gun. Uh, skiing confuses and terrifies me <laughs> to begin with. So I don't think it's a very good plan. Yeah. Uh, they also had a special Seiko quartz watch that had a teletape printer. Seiko, another big uh, marketing partner with the James Bond series at this point in time. Yeah. Um, it looked like uh, labels, like a label maker. That, that's the kind of paper that came out. It wasn't sure. really paper. It looked more like. A label maker, like a thing. little, not we're, quite ticker tape, the way that it probably would have been. More like, more like you know where the letters had been stamped, so they're sure. raised up a little oh, bit. Okay. You know, like that kind of old well, label maker. That's even, that's even more. Yeah, uh, you wonder how logical. much how much paper could a watch hold? <laughs> and and if it, and if it's raised, I mean, if it's actually embossed, then I mean that that requires a a, a stamping yeah, action. Exactly. I mean, that requires some kind of swing and. Motion. Well, clearly, Roger Moore's uh, uh, left arm is hollow. And has all the working technology necessary to print on this stuff. It, they never explore it in the movies. They don't tell you about that. It's but, just but it's a, clear. It's I mean, it's obvious. It's, given. it's subtext. Right. Uh, and um, also there was a Soviet agent who had a cigarette that he could blow through and stun gas would come out of it. I love that there's like just this knockout gas that apparently all it does is render you unconscious. Completely and harmless other than making yeah. you briefly unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up part one of the James Bond franchise. There's so many more movies. I mean, there are more than 20 films. So clearly it's taking us a while to get through these. But we'll be back to talk about more of those in our next episode. In the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for future episode topics, you should let us know. Write us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. Uh, yeah, because we uh, go, go find us over there. We're going to try to, you know, interact socially with you guys when, yeah. when possible. We, we're, we're enjoying doing this and we always love hearing what you have to say when we shout out questions like this. Yeah, so. it's fun because it gives us a little more direction and we're not, we're not just, uh, you know, there's this huge topic and we're going to tackle this 3% of it because we think we know what they want to hear. This way we know what you want to hear. Yes. We may not cover it, but we know what you want to hear. Anyway, yeah, take part in the conversation, guys. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 